0: Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Port here on WDAY, 701 2939000. is your local number, 888-970-9329. That's your toll-free number. You can email me during the show, talk at WDAY.com, or send me a tweet, heck, whatever the heck you feel like it, at Rob Port. Good afternoon, Atiel. Did you have a good weekend?
1: I did. I got a new mattress this weekend.
0: Ooh. That's always good. It's fabulous. I remember the first time I spent most of, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 18 years old. Um, lived in an apartment with a friend for a little while. Bought my first house in my early 20s. And, uh, but didn't have a lot of furniture in, in the house for a long time. <laughs> um, it's kind of bachelor pad type thing. And uh, my, I had a mattress on the floor for a long time. And I remember um, shortly after my wife and I started living together, my parents bought us a uh, a, a, like a, a, a nice sleigh bed, and it was like a revelation. I, I didn't realize how poorly I was sleeping. So that, that stuff matters. It makes a big deal. Big difference. Uh, I had a good weekend as well. Watched the Minot High Magi secure their third straight boys basketball championship. Over the weekend. So that was pretty cool. My daughter was cheering. So I was down there cheering him on. And it was fun. Beat the uh, Bismarck Century. So that was pretty cool. I don't I don't probably watch high school sports as much as a lot of people do. But it's it's, it's fun. I mean, there's just so denying it. it. It's a lot of fun. But anyway, <clears throat> I want to get straight to my guest, uh, who actually is probably a familiar voice because he sat in for me on Friday. Former Lieutenant Governor Drew Wrigley, who also, for the purposes of this segment... Was also the former U.S. Attorney for the state of North Dakota. And I wanted to talk to him because we're hearing a lot of stuff uh, out there about Trump replacing U.S. Attorneys and how it's terrible the way he's going about doing it and yada, yada. And Drew was a U.S. Attorney. And I wanted to, who's been through this process, both being appointed to replace somebody as U.S. Attorney uh, and also being replaced when a new uh, presidential administration uh, came in from another party. Uh, so, Drew, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for sitting on Friday. Hope you had fun. I did have fun. It was a pleasure to be there, Rob. Good to, good to be on with you and your listeners today. I want to read something. Uh, former U.S. attorney, who, by the way, was was not your immediate pre- predecessor. I understand there was an interim uh, mm. person, but uh, the, the person appointed by President Obama to fill your position, Tim Purden, uh, said recently to KX News, I quote, I want to make it very clear I don't think this was handled well at all, and he's talking about Trump. Uh, asking for the resignation of of dozens of us. attorneys across the country. Um, I, uh, whether you're whether they're career prosecutors or people who have never worked in the department before and that have given public service, these are prosecutors that have been uh, focused on taking apart drug cartels and prosecuting terrorists, domestic and foreign. Uh, they've been at the tip of the spear uh, on public safety for many years. I think you want to honor that service. and I think you know a situation, we were given a couple of hours to clear out, and the Obama administration, it wasn't handled that way. So he's saying that the Trump administration handled this poorly. What say you?
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I don't I don't know where Tim's getting his information. I don't even know why he's referencing that. Or I, I can assure you that nobody in Washington worrying about the federal transition uh, from one administration to the next will care what a former U.S. attorney has to say about these things, and that's not not why I'm talking about it today. Tim Tim knows better than that. That's the way this goes in, in these terms, uh, Presidents handle them differently. Times call for different uh, things, and they want to they have an approach. But the reality is that the, the presidentially appointed U.S. attorneys always uh, transition out, maybe one or two exceptions, rare exceptions. Uh, and there's usually a particularized reason for that, but it's quite unique. And it's not just that it's a political plum, it's not that at all. As a matter of fact, it's, it's the only way that you can have a responsive Justice Department by having the U.S. attorneys who work report directly to the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, and, but then work for and at the pleasure of the President of the United States by whom they're appointed. And so that's, that's the way that it works and U.S. attorneys, uh, can be removed for. Um, for uh, uh, any reason that the president uh, sees fit. Now, when you have a transition to a new administration, obviously this administration has a very different approach uh, on several key law enforcement uh, initiatives and ideas, and it behooves them to have their team in place around the United States. Um, I don't see any benefit at all. What would be the benefit to waiting months and months and months to transition to uh, have a department that's going to reflect the new attorney general in the administration? I would say that after any administration. And, in fact, I did at the end of the administration that I served. I was proud to have been appointed by President George W. Bush to be U.S. Attorney for North Dakota, confirmed by the United States Senate, and served a little over eight years. But in that capacity, we got to the end of the term uh, when President President Obama uh, took office, and uh, I'll make, this is actually probably a pretty decent example of what I'm saying. President Obama took office. Uh, there was a move uh, here, and I, it, was, it was nice. I was humbled by it, but a move by several people, some in the media and, and elsewhere in the state, to keep Drew Wrigley as the U.S. attorney. In fact, the largest newspaper in the state wrote a, uh, an editorial that still uh, makes me blush if I were to be reminded of it all these years later. Well, I happened to be in Washington when that uh, editorial uh, calling on the new administration, and they, did, they even did an editorial cartoon. Uh, President Obama holding a sword and drew Wrigley standing there holding the scales of justice and by the way the the cartoon didn 't look anything like me but anyway so uh it was kind of funny, but I was happened to be in d c rob and I went to the uh, I went over to senator dorgan's uh, office and met where actually it was senator conrad's office and met with his chief of staff along with senator dorgan's and I let them know that not only was I not orchestrating this move by uh, uh, by some of the some of the media in the state, and then some private and other individuals started a Facebook page or something. I said, not only am I not orchestrating this, I understand that there's a new administration and there's going to be a new uh, U.S. attorney. We had a long discussion about it, and uh, they asked whether I think they were maybe a little incredulous. They asked if I would put that in writing. I said, of course I will. Uh, I meant it, but I meant what I also told them was obviously I had been handling at that point. Uh, The Rodriguez case, which I had personally been the lead trial lawyer on of that team, we tried that case uh, to a uh, guilty verdict and then a death penalty verdict. And then I was also going to be the person who was going to argue that case to the Eighth Circuit on appeal, which I did in February of 2009. The Chiefs of staff uh, asked, you know, they let me know, they're glad to have me stay. Uh, And then I said, you know, if it's all the same to you, unless you're going to have somebody else coming in, Uh, I'd like to stay until the uh, appeal is complete. They said, absolutely. We don't have anybody who's uh, immediate going to be coming in. So it was all worked out. It was not a problem at all. And then I left. And Tim Purden, they didn't confirm him until a whole year after that, which was quite late in the cycle. And I have no idea why that took so long. But I do know that uh, I wasn't holding anyone up. And if I had been, I'm sure they would have have moved me along, but they were kind enough to allow me because it made sense for that case, for for me to argue that case after having tried that case. That's sort of a long recitation, but at the end of the day, uh, I wanted people to understand that I recognized that President Obama was entitled to have his team of U.S. attorneys in every state, large and small, to have his team of U.S. attorneys out there carrying out the objectives of his administration.
0: Is, is this just? And by the way, seven zero one two nine three nine thousand. If you want to join in, eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Is this? Is this just partisan politics? Because I, 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 I mean, to me, yes. You look, you look at the changeover yes, the U.S. Attorney. Yes, that's all it is. It's nothing and, else. Right. That's because what it is. T- Trump comes in, he's got a different agenda. Obviously, he's not going to ask U.S. Attorneys right. who disagree with that agenda to implement it. So he's gonna, he's going to appoint people, and, and it just seems like, if, if you boil down to it, well, we're upset that that Trump's, you know, kicking out all of Obama's uh, people. Well, of course he's going to do it. Obama's people don't agree with him. I mean, like it or not, whether you like Trump's politics or not, he's the president. He has a right to advance an agenda. So you say this is just partisanship.
2: Uh, acting now like it's the first time that U.S. attorneys have been asked to move along and have the Justice Department reflect the new administration, yeah, that's just politics, and, and uh, it's not even it's not even very good politics because at the end of the day, uh, the White House changes hands between the political parties from time to time, and every administration will want and should have a department that reflects its objectives. It is it is elected by the American people. Uh, the Attorney General of the United States is appointed by the President, confirmed by the Senate, and oversees the work of the U.S. attorneys and those and those objectives of the Justice. Department. If you had 93 different uh, U.S. attorneys doing 93 sets of things, their own objectives, uh, taking off on their own priority matters, you'd have no national law enforcement priorities. and I don't think anybody sees a benefit to that.
0: There was a, a U.S. attorney, one of the U.S. attorneys from the state of New York, uh, Preet, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I'm, I probably would butcher it, but
2: yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah.
0: He, uh, he, you know, he he made a big deal on social media. He, you know, he he didn't resign. He was fired, and you know, he was yeah. he refused to resign. What do you make of that?
2: You know I don't I don't know him personally uh he's an impressive person I, I will say that uh, over the years I remember reading about him when he was first appointed that's one of the you know real key US attorney spots in the United States and he sounded like he had an impressive background and and it sounds like he's had an impressive uh uh you know service as the u s attorney for the Southern district of New York, so uh, you know I certainly applaud him in that, and there is sort of a kinship between u uh, s attorneys of both parties across the years. It's always fun to talk to those people, so I have nothing but uh I've only read you know praise about him uh, publicly why he why he took this uh this uh, move, I'm not sure. There were some reports that uh, the president apparently had indicated he wanted him to stay, and now there was a change of mind and heart. Um, I, again, I don't know. Uh, I don't know uh, the, that U.S. attorney, um, but uh, his impressive service, I think, is what uh, he'll he'll he should stand on. And, and on the way out the door, I guess uh, you just sort of take that as you go. My guess is, although again I don't know him, probably a little bit tongue in cheek. You know what I mean? I, I'll bet you. You know, he made comment too i saw on the news that he was just proud of his service uh, proud of having the opportunity to serve as the united states attorney and i can sure echo that i i always have felt and always will feel the same way so uh, i'm thinking maybe that wasn't such a serious remark by him i'm sure he understands how it goes
0: all right well drew thank you so much for your time and bringing a little clarity to that issue uh, i think we all appreciate it thank you take care thank you that's uh, drew Wrigley, former u.s attorney former lieutenant governor and uh sometime talk radio guest host <laughs> We're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll be right back. 701-293-9000. You want to join the program? 888-970-9329. Email talk at wday.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. I hear you got the new bumps in.
1: I love Andrew WK so much I can't even stand it.
0: It's uh, it's so good. He's so good. He's hilarious, by the way. On Twitter, you ever follow him like, on Twitter?
1: He's not just hilarious on Twitter. He's brilliant.
0: He's very, very good. You know, it's it's funny. I've actually seen him um, on Fox News. He would be on uh, Red Eye with Greg Gutfeld as a guest now and then. And uh, I mean, I mean, he's. He's a little bit silly, you know. I mean, he's he's a little he's Andrew WK. But very insightful too. I I, I always feel like he's an interesting person to listen to. And, and and maybe that would surprise you because his his perception, you know, he's always on about, you know, he's he's the king of party and all that stuff. Actually a, a very smart, very insightful guy.
1: He he really is. I interviewed him on Midday Live a few months ago when he came down to Fargo for um, a, 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 talk seminar on the, on the art of partying, which is to say it's not, it wasn't just about, you know, throwing a party. It was about I- injecting that sort of positivity into your everyday life. And it's, it was, it was really, really amazing. He's, he's very insightful and even all of his music isn't just about partying. I'm going to take us out with a piece from, um, his album, 55 Cadillac, which is my favorite right. of his albums.
0: All right. Sounds good. Uh, we have a uh, listener asking, uh, who the heck is MWK? It's Andrew, Andrew WK. WK, and his music is great. You should look it up. Uh, let's see. listener says, it sounded like a Tony Hawk video game intro. Well, too bad. You know what? I think it sounds pretty good.
1: We love it. You
0: know, over the um, over the weekend, we had a little b- a story broke about uh, Governor Doug Burgum uh, taking money from... People who work in the oil industry, not from like the political action committees, but just oil like oil industry executives. Um, and he he did that during, back during the primary campaign. He he made some comments about that because because Wayne Stengem was getting some some donations from the oil industry. And he said, I quote, and this is quoting uh, Governor Doug Burgum Ber- from last May. Uh, He said, I quote, if you're a member of the NDIC and you're asking for someone's support and you regulate that industry and they know you're going to continue to regulate them, think about that power dynamic. So back in May, Burgum sort of throwing some shade at Stenjum for taking those sorts of donations. And then Burgum goes on in the general election to take those donations themselves. And I was critical of Burgum back in May when he made those original comments. I said that if if the money was being offered to him, he would absolutely take it. I think I feel – exonerated in those comments, because obviously when it was offered to him, he did take it. Uh, Burgum is defending it now by saying, you know, essentially he, he thinks that those people ought to be allowed to participate in the political process, the same as everybody else. And I agree with him. Um, I don't know why he made those original comments in, in the first place. North Dakota Democrats have been trying to make this a political issue for multiple election cycles now, going back at least to 2012. Uh, they were sort of attacking North Dakota's Public Service Commission uh, candidates, uh, Republicans, uh, including former Congressman uh, Kevin Kramer. Uh, so I must have gone back as far as 2010, maybe. I don't know. Um, for taking uh, donations from the coal industry, which obviously the Public Service Commission uh, regulates uh, surface mining in that. There was, a, there was a lawsuit filed by environmentalists and everything, and it was thrown out of court and everything else because you know what? We have a participatory sort of government. Which means that we are allowed to influence the people who govern us. I, I, I think sometimes we get so lost in this race to cast everything that the people we disagree with is doing as negative, as as untoward, as unethical or whatever, that, that we just sort of lose sight of, of the, the overall picture, right? So – In this instance, everybody's like, oh, you know, special interests are out there spending money to influence Governor Burgum. And it's like all sorts of people spend money to influence politicians, all sorts of people communicate with politicians to influence them, all sorts of people write op eds and blog posts and make YouTube videos and everything else trying to influence the political process. That is how democracy works. People are allowed to spend money to advance the political causes or the political candidates that they agree that they agree with, that they think is best for the state. In the primary, clearly a lot of people in the oil industry thought that was Wayne Stengem. In the general election, they thought it was Doug Burgum. Now, the, the thing goes as well, the governor sits on the NDIC, the North Dakota Industrial Commission, which regulates oil and gas development in the state. And so because they're regulating oil and gas, it's not appropriate that the oil and gas industry donate to help elect the people who sit on that commission and to which I say baloney why not I mean, we, we we never complain about donations to candidates from people who don't want to who don't want to pump oil or drill for oil for people who want to stop building oil wells or people who want to stop mining coal why is it why why is it that if you're somebody who works in the industry and wants to drill for oil Why shouldn't your voice matter in the political process? And I I think the only reason in terms of ethics or whatever, I mean, I don't want a bunch of people who are bought off or whatever. So we do need a level of accountability, but that accountability is in the form of disclosure. Disclose the donations. These are the people who gave money to help elect Doug Burgum. We all know what they are. We can look it up. If anything, we ought to disclose more. I've been an advocate for that for some time. I'd be okay with more often disclosures and disclosing even more. But beyond that, people ought to be able to spend their money the way they want to spend it. If you want to spend it on a certain candidate, if you want to spend it on whoever, and each one of us who spends money on on politics is advancing a special interest, our interests. We are all special interests. Doug Burgum said something, he did something hypocritical. He said something kind of dumb back during the primary campaign. And then during the general did the opposite of what he said originally. And that's on Burgum, and he needs to explain that. But I I am really tired of this idea that oil industry or coal industry or whatever donations are are inherently tainted or whatever. Give me a break. It's a partisan talking point. Democrats have been campaigning on it for years now, and they're not winning because most North Dakotans know it's a dumb talking point. All right, more to come straight ahead. We're going to talk with David Flynn, UND economist, professor of economics at the University of North Dakota, about the state's revenue forecasting. We'll talk with him, and uh, Mateel's going to take us out here with Andrew W.K.'s, her favorite Andrew W.K. song. More, straight ahead. Don't go away. Emails uh, talking about the U.S. attorney story. We were talking with former U.S. attorney Drew Wrigley uh, to begin the show. Chris emails. He says it's a it's a real. This is a real non-story. Clinton replaced all 93. Obama replaced the first Native American female uh, U.S. attorney. Uh, people just need to rage. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's it. Trump's got every right to to replace the U.S. attorneys. Everybody knew this was coming. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's. It's just it's just people are just feeding the rage, right? It's just it's just another talking point to throw out. That's all it is. All right, let's uh let's move on here. We have uh UND uh economics professor David Flynn uh on the show. And uh, I I read David's blog as you should. It's called barterisevil.com and last week he wrote when uh North Dakota lawmakers got their new revenue projection and I have been frustrated, I think a lot of people in the public have been frustrated, that the forecasters can't seem to get the state's revenues right. And I, Even, even accounting for the fact that ours is a commodity-driven economy and we're a lot of times impacted by things well beyond the control of public policy, but it, it's frustrating that they can't get it right. And on his blog, David wrote of this most recent forecast, I quote, I would go into the details of the forecast, but why bother? We have absolutely no insight into the forecast process allowed, the assumptions underlying any model relationships, or even a list of variables employed in the time period considered. Seriously, if this were my forecasting class, they would fail. David, thanks for your time. Tell us why you said that.
3: Well, because they would. Uh, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is an exercise in what not to do and how not to approach a forecast process and as you mentioned and by the way thanks for having me on but but as you mentioned the the fact that we are a commodity-based economy largely in North Dakota means that you have to know going into it that there are going to be periods of incredible volatility that really are not centered in your your state Uh, and so You just have to be more aware. You just have to be more diligent. You just have to be more open. And in all honesty, it's a a significant degree of this, I think, is about the, the transparency. You have to sit there and say, guess what? We have to do an update every single month. We don't want to do these sporadic updates that somehow leave you with the opinion that, oh, we're correcting it now. Uh, and then we keep correcting it down and down and down and down. I mean, there, there's a there's a degree of this that is on Moody's. There's a degree of this that is on the legislature. It's just not being done. In what I would tell you is the way I teach my students how to approach the forecast process.
0: 701-293-9000, if you want to join the program, 888-970-9329. This stuff matters because... Our lawmakers, they're in session every odd numbered year, you know, the first part of the year for no more than eighty days. And they budget for the next two years. I, I don't know if people realize that, but it's it's not it's not like how maybe you budget at home where you have X amount of the checking account and you know exactly how much you're getting and they're budgeting on money they don't have yet. They're looking into the future saying, We expect to take in this much money, therefore our budget can be this. So you have all these lawmakers in Bismarck trying to write a budget that's going to be within bounds of what they're told is going to come in and what they're told is is going to come in is wildly inaccurate, or even if they feel like they can't trust it because, Mm -hmm. you know, politically these guys don't want to have to come back into special session or something. They're going to look, they're going to have egg all over their faces. They don't want to have to do that. So, you know, if they don't feel like they could trust the forecast, then that has ramifications for every corner of our state budget. So if if you were running this, David, how would you do it differently? How would you improve it?
3: Well, I, I think first and foremost is that you have to essentially plan on something closer to uh, at least a quarterly update, if not a, a monthly update. We're getting new information all the time. And whether you want to say that there should be a new announcement uh, made to the public or a new briefing given to the appropriate legislative committee, as you get this new information, you should be putting this out there and putting this this forward and saying, you know, here's here's our latest, greatest piece of information and where we think things are going. Because really... Uh, I I think at some level there's 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 now a better understanding uh, but but really initially the concern was oh my gosh oil 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 we're losing all this oil tax revenue and that hasn't been the case the the big adjustments have come in areas like uh the the sales tax and when this first when this last biennium's budget first came out I was on various different radio shows saying, I I think these numbers are wildly inaccurate. Why is it that sales tax is assumed to stay so high? People, even if oil didn't go down, are you telling me that we were going to have constant churn in that labor market such that people would be continuing to buy everything they need to set up an apartment? Well, right. I mean, That's the
0: problem. Big chunks of that sales tax revenue was being driven by the drilling activity, which is a much different thing than the production. Most of the state's... Direct oil tax revenue comes from production and extraction. That's mm-hmm. after the drilling mm-hmm. phase when we're pumping oil out of the ground. But a lot of the sales tax revenue is driven by that very labor-intensive, very equipment-intensive drilling aspect. When they're mm-hmm. fracking and they're drilling and everything else, you know, they're buying equipment. they got workers. Those workers are buying stuff. They're staying in hotel mm-hmm. rooms. They're eating at restaurants. They're doing all that kind of stuff. And that drives a lot of tax revenue. Um so w- w- when you say that this is a very transparent unpack that I mean what 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 is the de- cuz we contract with Moody's and I I've, I've spoken mm-hmm. with some of the governor Dalrymple, somebody I've spoken to I spoke with governor burgum about this and lot legislative leaders and I said you know if if we can't pin I mean is this like Moody's fault so is are, are there is it like a proprietary thing where we're not allowed to see how Moody's is you know you know moving the beans around or how, how sure. You know why? Why? Why is it not transparent? Well, and and
3: that's a great question. And and I, I guess I would say a couple of things here. Look, as a as someone who has forecast, and full disclosure, I bid on this contract many by any a few byenia ago, and I did not get it. Um, you know, there's always that concern. I am not even suggesting that Moody's necessarily would have to. Reveal everything about their particular forecast process. Just like if I came up with a, a, a great formula, and again, full disclosure, we are working on that up here to try. You know, trying to on my spare time, I'm trying to figure out a better forecast model for for revenues. But the 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 idea that we don't know how they're thinking about the process, a collection of variables would be an improvement. Um, was this a model that you were thinking was good for two years? Was it a model that you said, hey, we need to update every month and, and we'll send you an update? Or, and then somebody in North Dakota said, no, nah, just you know, just give us the forecast and we're, and we're good with that. I mean, we need to know those kinds of things. From my own past experience doing some of these kinds of, of projects, there are times you have to try to talk your client into the right thing and say, look, you're at the question you're asking, or I should say it this way, the question you want me to answer and what you're telling me you want as output do not match. And you've got, you've got to understand, I can give you the output you want, but it will not help you answer the question you are asking or at least not help you to the extent you think it will. You know, Sometimes you need to, to be that kind of a person and say it's not going to work. And so I think a better understanding of that, I think an understanding of the give and take between the state and Moody's what what was you know is it just a matter of we get a report as an email attachment and that's that's the extent of it what other kinds of conversations are going on how are we arriving at estimates for oil prices how are we arriving at the interactions between these now I'm a very statistically model driven guy uh and a lot of people will find a lot of fault in that and I can get that and I can understand that but it's also the case that you can look at my model and you can you can improve it or you can benchmark against it and make changes If this is just sort of a a kind of a we see this kind of relationship happening and therefore we see this going on and we think this is the number, I I don't see how that's superior to to anything else that's out there.
0: Well, and we should point out it's it's not just the shortfalls because before Mm -hmm. we were in this revenue with shortfalls, we had a booming budget and the forecasts were wildly off there. As a matter of fact, I I think – in one biennium, the peak of the oil boom, I think I remember doing the math, and the forecasts were off by more than a billion dollars. Yep. Uh, were, were, were they actually forecasted revenue? And that's not good either, right? I, nope. I remember talking to lawmakers at the time, and they were sort of chuckling, saying, "Well, that's okay because you know if, if the forecasted revenue was was higher, then we would spend all the money." Which I got to say, as a fiscal conservative, was a little depressing to hear. But <laughs> setting that aside. Uh, You know, there are there are policy decisions to be made, funding for universities, tax policy, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things which are built on top of that forecast. And if it's off by a billion dollars one way or the other, how do you make good policy? Uh, So it's not just it's not just that they haven't been able to forecast the the, the revenue slide post oil boom. It's that they, Mm they didn't get it right going during the oil boom either.
3: Yep, and that's – you're exactly right. I mean, if we're talking about a policy formulation process, um, you know, inaccuracy is inaccuracy. Missing uh, – yes, missing on the downside is is not necessarily the same extent of the problem as, as being too high on your forecast, but it does create problems in terms of process. How do you formulate your policies going forward? I think it's a legitimate question to to sit there and say – were the legislature just used to these forecasts coming in low and assuming that there would be extra money coming in. That's the kind of thing that builds into your process. I don't like equating government budgets and and household budgets, but if a household keeps getting money in, revenue in, in excess of what they're planning on, on getting, they start treating that kind of stuff like found money. They start sitting there and saying, well, we can go out to eat another time or we can buy a big TV or we can do this with it. I mean, there are all kinds of things, and some of that's good and some of that's not good, and and I'm not faulting, you know, the the, the households for making decisions with money that they have. But, you know, in the long run, infrastructure needs, other kinds of of planning weren't taking place when we were absolutely 100% flush with extra revenues, and now we're not, and so, I mean, it's just a... A monumental collapse of the forecast process well, over the last decade or so.
0: I, I don't think that you have to be a, an economics professor. In fact, I think you could even be a college dropout blogger to understand that revenues <laughs> from an oil boom aren't going to be the new normal, right? I, I was saying I, this. I would agree. We <laughs> maybe agree. shouldn't be building, you know, a hundred percent increases in the in the general fund spending on the back of revenues during a a abnormal point in in our state's economy that's not going to be the new normal and everybody knows this but they did it anyway and that's where we're at they got a new forecast we're now entering you know the rubber's going to hit the road on budgeting here starting this week uh you know and and we're going to see a lot of tough decisions get made what's your advice for lawmakers as they're making their decisions because i i think there's a lot of them that got to be quietly saying how much how much can we trust this forecast really
3: well, I, I think, I think um, you know, in all honesty, one of the things they have to be doing is sitting there saying, I, I don't think we can trust uh, these numbers at all, and they have to start saying to themselves, are there other people we need to talk to? Are there other people we need to be talking to um, now and and possibly in an ongoing capacity? Uh, but they also have to probably now be entering into that minimize the damage mode where, you know, I I'm sure they don't want to make further cuts. But at the same time, they're going to have to do – and they're going to have to sit there and say, what are the least damaging cuts I can make? Even even though – and I'm an economist, so the idea of fairness is kind of one that I don't deal with because yeah. I'm, I'm more about efficiency well, than I am that's, about that, equity. That's,
0: that's a policy question. I mean I think what we're right. talking about more is, is the science of, of getting that yeah. revenue projection right. What, yeah. One last question. Would it make sense to have more than one forecast or to have – you know, we have Moody's do one – Maybe we have, and maybe it costs a little extra money, but it seems like maybe if we got a couple, now we have a few different data points, it could look at, you know, try to find a middle ground between them. Or we just, it seems like we're just kind of hanging our head on one.
3: Yeah, I know many states that do that. My, uh, when I I was in Indiana when I was getting my PhD, and uh, the state of Indiana got between three and five different forecasts couple from the universities in the state, Indiana, Purdue, uh, a couple of private sector forecasts, and basically had quarterly meetings where they sat down, the, the key legislative committee sat down with the forecasters saying, what's your update? What are you seeing? And they got multiple data points. And, and really the virtue of that is if everybody's saying the same kind of thing, but maybe their, num- their level is a little bit off, but they're all predicting growth, that's a pretty strong indicator that there's going to sure. be growth. You know, that that's a better process to follow for a state, particularly one as volatile as the state of North Dakota when it comes to the commodity basis for the economy.
0: David, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. David Flynn, read his blog, barterisevil.com. More to come. We'll wrap the show up right after this, so go away. good song no welcome back rob Port. we're gonna wrap the uh show up jay thomas show coming up next i'll be sticking around a little bit we're gonna talk about the gambling thing uh house majority leader al carlson's casino bill got a uh got a committee hearing today and i, I actually wrote a a, a a post saying that the state of north Carolina gonna ought to just legalize gambling what would you think about that Natil?
1: Just, le-
0: just legalize it. Yeah,
1: just- well, I guess I guess if we're going to just legalize gambling, let's legalize marijuana while we're at it too. And then I won't yeah, have to all right, wait for our- the stupid medical marijuana stuff to get figured out. I have been
0: I've been advocating that since last year when I was critical of the medical marijuana ballot. Let's just legalize it. Let's just just legalize it. That's what we ought to do.
1: I don't know if the state's ready for such big steps, Rob.
0: Maybe not, but uh, hey, maybe Carlson's bill could at least start that discussion. I have heard. And I haven't confirmed this, but when I wrote my post, I got some text from some lawmakers said that they were hearing about amendments to Carlson's bill, which might look towards a more wide, instead of state-owned casinos, private casinos, something like that. I don't know. Something to keep an eye on. Jay Thomas Show, coming up next. Stay tuned for that. You can catch me Monday through Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. right here on WDAY, or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at SayAnythingBlog.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again. later. I was going to show
1: them all this time Cause you know I ain't no fool And I don't need no more schooling I was born to just walk the line